Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. It's a great pleasure to be welcoming this guest of ours, Louise Goffin. She's a very interesting. Hi, Paul. Good to have you with us. <laughs> She's a very interesting woman, a singer, songwriter, producer, musician, a Grammy nominated recording artist. Her most recent release, All These Hellos, is out now. She's also the host of a podcast herself, which I have to say is quite fascinating. It's called The Great Song Adventure, which I've been enjoying a lot. Thank you very much for making the time to talk to us. Yeah, my pleasure. Just that introduction, and I have to say, just your name, it's very clear. This is a woman very, very much involved in song. Yeah, I would say so. I've been pretty immersed in songs and song writing my whole life. If you could give us a little illustration with words, what would you say life was like growing up? Gosh, I it's hard to say. I mean, I grew up in, you know, first Brooklyn and West Orange, New Jersey. So it was definitely an East Coast experience an East Coast 60s experience, I would say, and, and, you know, more suburban than urban. And really it was family, you know. I would say family was much more what it was about. My parents, you know, we lived in a house. They worked in a specific room, and the rest of the time, you know, we were in different rooms doing things kids typically do and little girls do, like, you know, easy bake ovens and dolls and all that stuff. You know, we had a dog, a backyard. I did, you know, I, my childhood was uh, pretty normal for a a little girl growing up in the 60s in New Jersey. And we went to Connecticut usually for a week or two in the summer to visit my grandparents you know, the modeling of my parents, you know, we'd, we'd all be in my parents' bedroom watching things on TV, the Ed Sullivan, Ed Sullivan show, you know, and I could tell what their focus was on all the, the new records coming out. And I also love music, too. Music was, for me, it was a balm and a soothing thing because my parents went into the city a lot to work and I didn't really like being in suburbia that much you know I, I think I've always enjoyed being close to a city and being able to go into a city and I think I was going a bit crazy in suburbia when my parents went into town and I felt left behind and kind of had this fa big fantasy life and music and I had a little record player in my room, you know, all of that for me was a way to get to some vitality and it continues to be actually, it's, it's amazing. It has really served that role in my life. I've been really taking stock actually, you know, at the end of the year of what I'm doing, how I'm doing it. Do I want to be doing anything differently? You know, there 
there are lots of paths for someone who writes songs and produces and understands music and records like I do. And when I think about it, I'm not that drawn to those other paths because, you know, everything you do is a full-time job, (laughs) really. You know, whatever you commit yourself to is very time-consuming. I mean, the podcast really, when Paul Zola and I started it, we at first thought, oh, we'll do an episode every week. And I just said, oh, no, I could never do that. (laughs) You know, if I did that... I would never have any time because I I spend so much time doing so many other jobs that, you know, it'll just take up all my time. And then as we started to do it more, I thought, I love doing this. I wouldn't mind doing spending more of my time doing this. And the way it's worked out is we, we do interviews as they come along as either of us are traveling or have the opportunity to talk to someone. If it's in LA, we like to, both go together if it's somewhere where just I am or he is we'll do them on our own but we always get together to do the the intros and be a team with the presentation and the way we've been doing it's just all at once you know we'll like we'll have maybe six or seven of them ready and we'll just do a day of putting them all together Yeah, so back to growing up, there was a vitality in music always for me that was a way to avert depression or loneliness or feeling disenfranchised or what do they call FOMO, fear of missing out. There was always a feeling of something more fun is happening somewhere else. You know, it's it's pervasive and always has been for me and especially with social media. But for me, music is a way that I can always directly connect with this life force and vitality. And and that's why I keep on being an artist. You know, it's like so many people I know, they just give up being artists because it's too hard and it's, it's hard to get traction. It's hard to get attention. It's hard to fill rooms, you know, and people just say, screw this. I'm not doing this anymore. I want a real job. And I've come to that point a lot of times in my life and I I really haven't been able to stop doing it yet. (laughs) So here I am. I wanted to talk about all these hellos. First of all, it's such an enticing title, but I, I loved all the songs. Really enjoyable. Tell me a little bit about... Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Tell me a little bit about making this this latest album of yours. Gosh, the making of this record was just one of the most joyous experiences. I just had an amazing opportunity. I had been more active as a solo artist with my, you know, indie label, Majority of One, which really was me setting up a way that I could do all the jobs a record company was doing or that I used to expect a record company to do. I mean, I obviously couldn't do it on the scale that they could do it. And, you know, they had teams to do things and I was doing them with myself and way smaller teams, but meaning, you know, maybe hiring one other person. 
to do a project or a video or artwork or whatever. But, you know, I had in 2013 put out Songs from the Mind. Then I did Apple on Fire. Uh, before that, I had done Bad Little Animals, which was 2008. So did I say 2009? I heard myself say that. I wanted to say 2013 was Songs from the Mind. Maybe I did say that. And then I just was making a record every year and doing singles in between. And then I went to Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp, I think it was 2014, to teach a songwriting masterclass. It was in Las Vegas. And I had done a couple of masterclasses. I just, I don't know why. I just thought, I really have a lot of opinions about songwriting and, you know, how to survive as an artist, how to thrive as an artist. And it's mixed in with my life philosophy, which just being an artist in my own life and living life and things that I have had to make sense of and find ways, you know, a, a perspective on. Somehow my songwriting masterclasses not really just about how to write a song. It's really about how to live life and how to process the things that happen to you in life and turn them into song and what that does for you. That seems to be the way it's come together. Anyway, I was doing that and there was a man there who worked for Friday morning quarterback who I spoke to after, you know, at the very end when everybody was gathering for performances of some of the students, I guess I gave him my email and he bought some CDs of mine. And then he became this fan who was, you know, really, really seemed to understand what I was doing on a really, really deep level, like really got everything that I was putting into these records and, you know, was a huge fan. And he was wondering why I wasn't making more records or why I wasn't more famous and why I wasn't performing more and all, and all these things. And, and at that time I still had, you know, fairly young kids, you know, I had a just starting out teenager and, you know, a tween and, you know, still doing that. And he wrote me so many emails and was just so excited about the work and, you know, said, why aren't you, why aren't you in the studio? I guess I sent him a, a list at some point that I had something like 30 songs in a Dropbox folder of unrecorded songs from over the years that I liked. And that list grew to 50 at some point when I actually started digging around. He just came forward and said, I will, I will pay for you to go in the studio and make a record, you know, this, and, and I want you to do it the way you want to do it. Like every thing you want to do, I want you to be able to do. It, it, it wasn't a matter of cutting corners, you know, anymore. It was really just cut corners, but I was always trying to figure out how to do things myself. So I went to Dave Way, who's an amazing producer and engineer, mixer, a great guy, 
And I just met Dave, actually. Um, I had been working with Billy Harvey for a couple of years, and he had first told me about Dave. He loved working with Dave Way. And then Dave and I met at a place called the Cinema Bar. And we either had... We either saw each other like right after that, or it was the week right before that. We we went to see Carl Wallinger at World Party play uh, for well the band World Party play at the Troubadour. So we saw each other like two times in like a two week period, and and the second of those times he said, you know, come by my studio. This was before my investor came along. And he said, bring a song. And I brought this song, The Fifth of July, which I had recorded in the 80s. And I always loved the song. And I had been playing it on the piano in this alternate way. And we ended up doing this wrecking crew, almost Beach Boysy version of this summer song called The Fifth of July that Terry Reed had also recorded, who I got to meet several times too. And I love Terry. And it, it just came out great. I mean, we worked one day. We asked a lot of great musicians to come who, you know, came and played on it. And it just came out so great. So when I had this budget to work with, I went to Dave and I just said, hey, you want to do this together? And that's how it started. And we just listened to the songs, picked what we were going to do. Uh, we only worked maybe three days of a, of a week and we would have a band for those three days and we would cut nine or 10 songs in those three days. And then the following week we'd have a different band and cut a different nine or 10 songs. And it went on like that for, you know, on and off. We hardly did any overdubs. And if we did them, we did them on the spot. It'd be like, we just cut the song. This is the take. Hey, Dylan, Dylan O'Brien, why don't you pick up that guitar and put that guitar part on it? And we do it right away. And then I, you know, I sung all the vocals live. I took tracks home and did a lot of the vocals at home on, on my own with an engineer. And sometimes I work on my own putting the vocals together and then Dave mixed everything, you know? So we weren't really, it wasn't like a laborious thing that we were sitting in the studio stewing over. Everything was always fresh, always artistic. You know, the musicians, whoever was in the room, it was like, we were the Beatles. It was like, Hey, I think we should play that section twice. All right. You know, there was real flow of ideas between everybody there. And of course we had amazing guests. You know, I, I was so honored to have Ruthus Wainwright come in and sing on Chinatown. Billy Harvey and I had been working together before that. So we had, Billy and I had written something like 12 songs one year. And so a lot of those songs ended up being on the record and he sung duets on some of them. And, um, Bantike Parks did killer arrangements on several tunes, one of which is on this record. And it was, you know, Ben Montench from the Heartbreakers, Jeremy Stacy playing drums, you know, flew out from London 
with David Catlin Birch. It was just so fun and so exciting and, and something you never, ever get to do if you're signed to a major record company. It would never happen. It would never happen because there would be this long wait with A&R going through all the songs, demoing the songs, writing with every writer in town until the record company decided that you had the hit song. The hit song would probably be far less interesting than anything you really wanted to say, you know, the song that they thought might be a hit. And, and then you do that record, you wait forever for them to put it on their release schedule, you know, then they put it on their release schedule and you have this, you know, six week to three month window of the impossible having to happen for the record company to sustain interest in promoting it. And then it's all over. And that's just hell. What I just described is typical, repeated, happened a million times, and has ruined a lot of careers and uh, broken many, many hearts in, in the record business. And I've been through it a lot. I mean, I was really lucky with DreamWorks um, when I put out Sometimes a Circle, because a lot of things that could have happened in that way didn't because of Lenny Warrenker who signed me and, you know, he was protective and of the project and Greg Wells and I were able to make a record that we wanted to make and it was quirky and A&R didn't mess with it, you know, and Lenny loved what we were doing. But I waited a long time to be on that release schedule. I think it was years. I think the record was done in 99 and they didn't put it out till 2002 and then they really did give it a great shot you know I went on a radio tour and we did really well at first and then the reason it didn't stick you know in terms of being a hit was it was too quirky for the market you know it wasn't a dumb enough chorus that people could remember after hearing it on medium rotation a couple times and then they dropped it, you know, into lower rate rotation as they used to do. But it's, uh, you know, since I've been doing it on my own and being the, my own record company, I've had more fun than I've ever had. I feel like the work I'm doing is better than it's ever been. It's just, everything's on another level. And I just have to deal with the fact that I don't have this, big team, you know, and, and that, that is, that's hard. There's only so much you can do in a day and it's artistically satisfying, but you do, you do need an army to get it out there. And I, I'm just not willing to give up all those gains to suddenly hand it to someone and say, Oh, here, you take it because I just can never be in that position again where I've given away the power and then, you know, you're waiting and your life is going by until it's on someone's release schedule. And then you have this limited amount of time and then they move on and you don't own your record and you know, it, it, it kills all incentives. So all these hellos was to me, this incredible gift because I'd been working so hard on my own and suddenly I had a budget. Suddenly I had Van Dyke Parks. I had Dave Way. I had these incredible musicians. But what I did have is I had 
really great songs coming in. The heavy lifting had been done before the record, and I've heard musicians say over and over that they can't they can't deliver with an artist or a song that isn't there. No matter how much they're being paid or how many hits they've had, it's a lot of work to try to turn something into something where it, it doesn't have it to begin with. And it's a lot of fun, conversely, to work on something where it's built into the song. You know, the structure is there, the key is there, the tempo's there, the lyrics are there. So it really was, it was the cream, it was the icing making this record of a lot of toil. This is, I'm sure, a difficult question. Is there a song from the album that isn't necessarily your favorite, but if you had to pick a song to represent the album or to present the album, what song would it be? Gosh, that's that's really tough and when you say not necessarily my favorite like that's always tough because you know they're all there for a reason I mean I had 24 songs to choose from and these these are the 10 that went on this particular record I'm thinking I I don't have the record in front of me at the moment so I'm thinking you know I have them committed to memory but I've got a picture what all the songs are Uh, well I mean Chinatown is amazing. I think the song that I was most addicted to listening to, I mean, everything on side one is just, I was addicted to listening to the last time I saw my sister. I think it just, you know, the fact that it had so many different sections and scene changes in it, and that in the the verses, it was very languid and storytelling and beautiful, but it was kind of a bittersweet commentary. And then the chorus goes into this, you know, Zeppelin, Cashmere-esque rock thing, but it's it's me singing and it's a tough message. You know, I'm telling another woman you know, at the time I wrote it, I guess you could say we were young women. Don't let other people tell you how to live your life. You know, don't believe what they're telling you. They don't have your best interests at heart, sister. <laughs> it's down to you. They're they're smiling at you, you know. <laughs> it, it's like the woman's version of the backstabbers. They smile in your face all the time. They want to take your place. I'm just... uh you know, I was just really proud of how that came out because, it's, you know, what that song does and that record does is, is not easy to pull off well. And I really felt like we pulled it off really well. Like it's, it amazes me that we did that and it came together like that. So I'm really proud of that one. And I also, you know, the last song on side one that I wrote was Marvin Etzioni, Let Me In Again. I knew when we wrote that song, like I came home and I was listening to it on my phone memo. And at that point I wasn't making a record. I didn't have this budget. I just listened to that song. And I said, there's something about the song that is so good. You know, it has this naked thing that like a John Lennon song has, and it didn't have it. I mean, the record has a little bit of that Beatle 
treatment on it. But but when the song was written, there was no treatment on it. It was just actually built into the song, this naked honesty. I love that song. So, I mean, some radio has been playing the title track, All These Hellos, I guess because it is the title track. But I don't know if that song is particularly indicative of what the whole album is in any way, you know, maybe it is. I, I love the seventies slide guitars on it. And I love that song when it was written too. I mean, the demo of that song, I would be driving around Billy Harvey. And I wrote that in, I think 2013, you know, that's the year we wrote, I don't know, 12, 13 songs together. And I always loved that song. So again, it comes down to the songs, you know, the records, I'm really proud of the record Dave Way and I made. It's a great record. It's, I think it sounds really great and it doesn't sound labored, which is refreshing in today's market, whatever that means. You know, everything is, that's out, it's, it's more electronica and there's a lot of loops. And this album was really it was very live, and I love that. There's something I was really hoping we could touch on. I thought it was very interesting. You mentioned that you were teaching the master classes that you teach. I'm hoping you can tell us about Right Girl. Right Girl is an organization, and I was Karen Taylor is the fearless leader, but it came to my attention, Michelle Lewis who is a real activist with music and pro-women and pro-songwriter and does a lot of great stuff and is so talented herself, you know, her own music. And she's very proactive in everything she does and, and a mom. She reached out to me one year, I don't know, four years ago, five years ago, I can't remember. And I was I was just lucky... You know, there were amazing songwriters. I was one in probably 28 songwriters. Songwriters way, way more successful than I am. You know, people who have had mega number one hits um, of all ages. And it's just this great organization where at-risk teen girls, and it's not just music. They have other programs, you know, poetry, writing, but this was the songwriting one. And, and, you know, we're invited to come in and we get in groups and we talk about songs and then we get with the girls individually. They go and work on some lyrics and then we get together with them individually and help tweak and shape the lyric. And then at the end of that, all those lyrics are handed in and we all go into an auditorium and the girls sit in the audience and the women songwriters are on stage, you know, sitting in a line. And we literally get handed a couple of lyrics, you know, okay, take these, these are yours. You sit down. And then when it's your turn on stage, you got to pick up one of those lyrics and make up a song, a melody to it and sing it live right then. And I'm always blown away. I cannot believe what these, of course they're super successful because they can do this, you know, come up, they have a lyric in front of them and all of a sudden it just sounds like this incredible song. 
But what's so moving about it is the girls who wrote these things are hearing their story and their lyric in song form performed for the first time. And it's such an esteem boost for them. It's like, that's me. That's my story. Those are my words. You know, and people cry and they freak out. And it, it's just the best, the best experience. And every time I'm asked to do anything with them, I just, I jump for the opportunity because it's great. What is the best thing about being Louise Goffin? Oh, gosh. I don't know. I, I, I think I like being me, which is nice to be able to say. I mean, what's unique about my outlook, you know, could be my best friend or my worst enemy. You don't really, you never really know, do you? But yeah, there's a few things that I could definitely claim. I'm pretty progressive. I'm always a little bored with the status quo, which I think has been a big part of my drive in life. I'm always a little, you know, wanting to be at the edge of whatever is happening. And it's not, I don't mean that way in terms of how I'm perceived. I mean, I'm that way. I'm, I'm like, how do you push it? I, I feel progressive. I always feel like I'm not quite in the time that I'm living in. I feel like things are just, a little too molasses moving in wherever I am. And I'm always thinking ahead of, you know, new ways to do things, a different way of looking at things. I've always been that way. And I, I, I like that about myself. I'm very ambitious, but I have a hard time with that because I was raised. My father was, you know, he didn't have, he was incredibly ambitious. We all know that he wouldn't have, achieved what he achieved in his life had he not been but he had this outlook I guess it was a low self-esteem thing but he really didn't admire people who were self-seeking at all didn't like it at all he didn't like bullshitters he didn't like egocentric people he didn't like people who paraded and you know were posturing. He was really humble, you know, to a fault. He was humble to a fault. He had no idea the giant that he was. And because he was that way and I was raised with him and I looked up to him so much that I was naturally ambitious, but I, I always beat myself up for it because I didn't think, I thought it was better to not be ambitious, even though I was ambitious. So I'd kind of be ambitious and then I kind of you know, kick myself back in line to be like, be grateful for what you have. Don't, you know, don't reach, don't, don't be assertive, <laughs> you know, wait for people to come to you. And so I, I've always had this battle within me about that, but I think you need a certain amount of ambition to just not be complacent and go for things, especially now that the population is getting bigger all the time. I mean, if you're not assertive, you just get left behind. And um, I'm philosophical. You know, I, I, I'm not motivated by material things first. I'm motivated by feeling enriched, I suppose, which is why I don't take the career path of doing what probably could pay me a whole bunch more money. Because I, I, I like 
the temperament of being an artist because you go through life and you ask questions and you write about them and you, you solve things and, you know, your work is a place where you can, you know, work some of that stuff out and, and then you have these songs. And what's so amazing to me is, you know, I'm performing songs or recording songs that I, I wrote like 30 years ago. It's not to say I don't have anything better lying around because I have lots of great songs lying around too. It's just that they, they've stood the test of time and then I'm recording them and seeing them. And it's like this younger version of myself is talking to myself now. And that's just a great feeling. If I was doing some other job where I was just getting paid, I don't know that I would be giving myself that enriching kind of legacy, you know, that songwriting does. So there's that. Anyone out there, if they want more information on Louise Goffin, it's louisegoffin.com. And if you're interested in finding out more about the podcast that she co-hosts with Paul Zolo, it's thegreatsongadventure.com. Do you have any parting words for our listeners? Well, do what you love. You know, I just say there's just no certainty in what you do. And, uh, you know, I think chasing happiness is doesn't really work. It, it's just find something that you enjoy where you're in flow in the day because everything really comes down to how you're going to spend today. And then you do that again. So I'll just say be safe out there. Be good to yourself. Be good to your people. That's it. That's all I got. <laughs> well, thank you so much for spending time with us. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Paul. My pleasure. All right. And a happy new year to you. Yeah. Happy new year to you. 2019. Let's see let's see what let's see what happens this year, yeah? <laughs> Fingers crossed, hope for the best. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right, until next time. Until next time. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. If you enjoy these interviews, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the podcast. You can help us by listening on the free Radio Public app. The show can also be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or Overcast. For more information, visit thepaulleslie.com or follow on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, all at The Paul Leslie. The Paul Leslie Hour theme song is performed and composed by Jeff Pike. Outro music is performed and composed by John Goodwin. See you next time on The Paul Leslie Hour. <laughs>